There's a Christian author in the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, once wrote that a children's story that's only enjoyed by children is actually a very bad children's story. He says the good ones last. And the story that Donna just read to us from 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath, it's one of the good ones. It might even be one of the best ones. But it also might be one of the most misunderstood. So this morning, we're going to approach this story from three different angles. We're we're going to see what this story is really about. We're going to see how it can help us. And we're going to see what this story ultimately points us to. So what it's really about, how it can help us and what it points us to. First, let's look at what this story is really about. For centuries, we've all read David and Goliath as the classic underdog story. It's about a weaker power defeating a greater power, defying all odds. And especially for us Americans, this kind of underdog story has formed the very bedrock of our self-understanding. Our country and the very fabric of our existence as the United States of America come from our ability to rise up, to take matters into our own hands and to liberate ourselves from tyranny and from whatever is oppressing us. That's the American Revolution in a nutshell. That's Rocky Balboa. In a nutshell, that's uh, the movie Rudy, in a nutshell. At our parish retreat in May, the secret got out, thanks to Levi Fuller and Nate Brown, that uh, in my early 20s, I was a death metal drummer. (laughs) Uh, You know, we all get our callings from somewhere. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Aubrey was a Southern Baptist. And uh, I was a death metal drummer. So I'm not sure where that puts me in the ranking exactly. But the secret behind the secret is that I was kicked out of the band when it first started. Yes, I wasn't good enough. And it was humiliating because the band was my idea in the first place. Uh, But thanks to the classic underdog story, to the I'll show you mentality that was deep in my bones, I was able to rise up from the ashes, take matters into my own hands, and find my rightful place on the drum throne. So uh, you probably have your own stories like that. It's part of what it means to be an American, to share in the cultural story that shaped our nation to begin with. And the thing is, we like to baptize these stories by tracing them all back to our Judeo-Christian roots, Uh, don't we? To, To a shepherd taking out a giant with a puny little slingshot. But There's a good chance we've gotten it wrong. And I'll just mention two ways. At first... We've underestimated the sling. Generally speaking, ancient armies 
had three kinds of warriors. They had cavalry, which were soldiers on horseback. They had infantry, which were foot soldiers. And uh, they had what we might today call artillery, which were archers and, most importantly, slingers. And slingers were just what you think they were. They were soldiers who could hurl rocks with incredible accuracy from a leather pouch that had two strings attached to it. And actually, the sling was one of the most deadly weapons in the ancient world. Uh, An experienced slinger was like a modern-day sniper. They could shoot to kill from up to 200 yards away. Um, And Irish slingers um, became known for their ability to hit a coin as far away as they could see it. Eaton Hirsch is a ballistics expert with the Israeli Defense Forces, and he recently did a series of calculations showing that a typical-sized stone hurled by an expert slinger at a distance of 40 yards away would have hit Goliath's head with a velocity of over 80 miles per hour. So imagine standing maybe that same distance in front of a major league baseball pitcher as he aims a baseball at your face. And uh, that's what facing a slinger was like, except what was being thrown was not a ball of padded cork, but a rock. So we shouldn't underestimate David's choice of weapon. It might not be the most obvious choice to us, but especially for the time, in that particular moment, it was the most clever Second way is we've overestimated Goliath. In verse 4 of our story, we're introduced to Goliath. He's over nine feet tall, and he's decked out like a Kardashian in bronze armor. That wasn't in the manuscript. But were you surprised at how long it took uh, to describe Goliath's wardrobe? It takes a whole paragraph. So clearly, Goliath is a force to be reckoned with, or not to be reckoned with, if you ask me. He's big, he's scary, and he appears to be totally invincible. But things aren't always what they seem. Malcolm Gladwell is a Canadian journalist who's done some fascinating research on this story, and he points out three clues in the text that suggests that Goliath wasn't exactly all that he seemed to be. First clue is at the end of verse 7, which says that Goliath's armor-bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Now, at first glance, this detail only makes Goliath appear to be more regal. He's Gaston, and his armor-bearer is the bungling little, you know, LeFou. A little sidekick. Except that, typically, only archers had armor bearers because they're the ones who needed both hands to fight. So what in the world is this nine-foot-tall giant doing with an armor bearer? Sprained wrist? Second clue. 
is in verse 43. Goliath says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? That's the New Living Translation that was read for us. But in the Hebrew, and maybe in some of your translations that you're looking at, the word is sticks. It's plural. Yet we know from verse 40 that David is carrying only one stick, his shepherd's staff. So why is Goliath seeing two? The third clue is in verse 44. Again, Goliath is speaking to David and he says, come over here. And I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. What does he mean, come over here? Why can't Goliath come to David? What many medical experts now believe is that Goliath had a serious medical condition called acromegaly. Uh, Andre the giant had the same thing. It's basically a massive overproduction of human growth hormone. And one of its most serious side effects is vision problems. Double vision, blurred vision, partial blindness, or all of the above. So let's go back, shall we, and solve our clues, or at least try. This is fun, isn't it? Why did Goliath need an armor bearer? Could it be because he was virtually blind without him? Why did Goliath ask David about his two sticks? (laughs) Because from far away, he saw two shepherd staffs instead of one. But he doesn't see the sling. See, Goliath thinks David wants to whack him with his walking cane, right? When in reality, David has brought a gun to a knife fight. And finally, why did Goliath tell David to come to him? Could it be that if David did not come to Goliath, Goliath could not find him otherwise? This changes the story a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, It's still an underdog story, but it's not quite the upset that we expected. Goliath had some chinks in his armor. And David was the only person that day in the valley with the courage to take advantage of those chinks in the armor. It isn't to say that David knew all of Goliath's weaknesses. There's no reason to think that he did. But here's what David did know. For however big Goliath was, God was way bigger. And so David runs into battle, fortified by his faith, And slays the giant that everybody else was scared to death of. So you see, there's another battle going on here beneath the surface. And that's what this story is really about. It's not just about David and Goliath. It's about faith and fear. It's about you and I acquiring such a God-dominated imagination that the Goliaths, Shrink in comparison. Now, if that's what the story is about, then how does it help us? What does it teach us about fear, about faith? Well, what I want to say is that this story shows us the real way to deal with our fears. But I can't really say that without explanation, 
Because if you're anything like me, you'll hear that statement and you'll plug it into the underdog story that you've already been grown up in. You'll come out with the wrong idea. So let me explain. Our culture, as I said, is dominated by the underdog story, the classic underdog story. But it's a particular version of it. It says, when you face your Goliaths, uh, when the odds really are stacked against you, when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling underqualified, when you're feeling totally out of gas, all you have to do is believe in yourself. Believe that deep down, you really do have what it takes to come out on top. You've got the skills, you've got the intellect, and most importantly, you've got the passion. That's how our culture tells us to deal with our fears. Visualize success and banish from your mind any notion that you don't have what it takes. We Americans love the self-made woman or self-made man. Love that. I'm reading a book right now called Team of Rivals. It's about Abraham Lincoln's presidential cabinet. Mike Deaton recommended it to me about two months ago as a quick read. It's a thousand pages. Go figure. So anyway, I'm currently a good 30 pages into this book. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's talking about Lincoln's childhood. So just listen to a few excerpts from it. Abraham Lincoln faced obstacles unimaginable to the other candidates for the Republican denomination. Uh, denomination. They wish, right? <laughs> <laughs> for the Republican nomination. In sharp contrast to the comfortable lifestyle of his competitors, Lincoln's road to success was longer, more tortuous, and far less likely. Born on February 12, 1809 in a log cabin on an isolated dirt farm in the slave state of Kentucky, Abraham had an older sister, Sarah, who died in childbirth when when he was 19, and a younger brother who died in infancy. His father, Thomas, had never learned to read, and according to Lincoln, never did more in the way of writing than to bunglingly sign his own name. All right, so then it jumps to his school years. Even as a child, Lincoln dreamed heroic dreams. From the outset, he was cognizant of a destiny far beyond that of his unlettered father and hard-scrabble childhood. He was different from those around him. He knew he was unusually gifted and had great potential. He has that in common with the rest of us, doesn't he? To the eyes of his schoolmates, Lincoln was clearly exceptional, and he carried away from his brief schooling the self-confidence of a man who has never met his intellectual equal. His mind, his ambition, his childhood, friend recalled, soared above us. He naturally assumed the leadership of the boys. He read and thoroughly reread his books while we played. Hence, he was above us and became our guide and leader. Okay, and then it sums it up like this. In their early years, each of Lincoln's rivals shared a similar awareness of unusual talents. But Lincoln faced much longer odds to realize his ambitions. Here it is. His voyage would require a Herculean feat of self-creation. A Herculean feat of self-creation. So it just struck me as I was reading this. Lincoln is the self-made man. He's the classic underdog. He grew up with nothing and he gained everything. And I'm not 
knocking Lincoln. I respect and admire him a great deal. I'm only pointing out that this is the gold standard in our culture for believing in yourself and showing people what you're made of. But here's the problem with that ideal. If your only strategy for dealing with your Goliaths is to give yourself a pep talk and remind yourself constantly about how good you are, how valuable you are, how invincible you are, and how much you can contribute to society, won't you end up looking a bit more like Goliath than David? Sure, you'll be confident, but you'll be blind to your own weaknesses. Sure, you'll have something resembling courage, but you really will just be masking your fears with the armor of arrogance. See, arrogance is like anger. It's always the second emotion. It's the cover-up for what's really going on. And most of the time, what's really going on is deep insecurity. You're insecure about something. You feel like you're not smart enough or attractive enough or strong enough, so you put on your armor to hide it and to keep people at a distance. But this isn't real courage at all. It's counterfeit. And it's still masking fear. It doesn't actually deal with the root problem. It just puts makeup and concealer on it. The Bible gives us another way. Biblical story says, whenever you face a giant, the single most important thing you can ever do is to remember what is most real. The character and power and rule of God. Look again with me at David's conversation with Saul, starting in verse 33. Saul says, there's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Jump to verse 37 now. David says, The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Now David knows why God has kept him in the pasture for all these years. God was forming him. He was replacing fear with faith. So in the Bethlehem hills and meadows... David was immersed in the grandeur of God. He had practiced the presence of God so thoroughly that God's word, which he couldn't literally hear, was far more real to him than the lion's roar, which he could hear. He had worshipped the majesty of God so continuously that God's love, which he couldn't see, was far more real to him than the bear's ferocity that he could see. What made David different from his countrymen? It wasn't because he had the self-generated, cool, raw courage of the American hero. Now, what fueled David's courage was his deep and abiding confidence in God's power, not his own.
You see, courage doesn't always mean the absence of fear. It's okay to be scared. There are things in life worth being scared of. Uh, You can be scared to lose someone you love. You can be scared to lose your wealth and your assets. You can be scared to lose even your life. But in those moments, when fear grips you, how do you get through it? Where do you put your confidence? You put it in yourself? Or do you put it in God? So we can't just say that this story is about facing your fears. It's about facing your fears with faith in God. In our psalm reading, we said that whenever we're afraid, we can still have joy. We can still be happy. We can still sing and make melody to the Lord. That's verse 6. But how can we do that? Not by building up our own self-esteem. Not by gritting our teeth and covering up our fears. No, it's by verse 8, seeking the Lord's face. That's the ticket. That's how we get true courage. It's by putting all our faith in the one who is bigger than everything so that even if our fears do crush us, even if David was defeated, even if we fail and lose what's important to us, our future is still completely secure in God. Our value is still completely secure in God. So that's what this story is about. And that's what it's teaching us. But one more thing. What is this story ultimately pointing us to? It'd be easy to say that we identify with David in this story. That we're the ones fighting our own battles, facing our own fears looking into the darkness without blinking an eye. But I don't think that's the case. I think we're a lot more like the Israelites. Because they had all the promises of God handed to them on a platter, but they chose instead to live in fear and not in faith. Because the reality is, we don't need a sling. We need a champion. We need a David who will step in front and fight for us. There's an interesting comment at the end of this story. After Goliath is defeated, the Philistines run away, and Israel gets all the valuables that they leave behind. But look specifically at what David does in verse 44. It's the last verse that Donna read. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. It's odd because Jerusalem didn't yet belong to Israel. It was still controlled by Israel's enemies, the Jebusites. And yet David brings Goliath's head to Jerusalem. What we're seeing here is an ancient way of declaring war. It was a way of saying, you're next. David would have placed Goliath's head on a stake. And he would have set it up in a place where all Jerusalem could see it. Just outside the city gates, right off the highway. And on the highest hill he could find, more than likely, a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was the very hill on which one of David's descendants, Jesus, would win an even greater victory, not just over Goliath, but over everything Goliath represents, 
over evil itself. You see, in the David story, we're told in verse 5 that Goliath is wearing scale armor. Most English Bibles will translate it as a coat of mail. But in Hebrew, the word is literally just scales. Goliath is a serpent. And David cuts off his head. But not before he defeats him in the most unconventional way. David beats Goliath with a sling. Jesus beats evil with a cross. He refuses to fight on the enemy's terms. He wins by losing. It's a lot like the youth who marched with Martin Luther King Jr. They could only win by losing. They needed to trick Bull Connor into showing his evil to the watching world by unleashing his police dogs and fire hoses on the helpless crowds. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a famous image from the Birmingham marches of a young African-American male with his hands down at his sides. A police dog, a German shepherd, is thrusting at his abdomen. And this image, this picture of unwarranted cruelty shocked the nation. It shocked all Americans. It shocked the politicians. It got everyone's attention. They were aghast at the inhumanity of it all. But in reality, you know what's happening? The young man is kicking the dog, possibly even breaking his jaw. Yet people only noticed the calm expression on his face. That's the cross. That's the moment when evil in all of its forms comes rushing together on Jesus, thrusting at him in full force. Everything you're afraid of, every giant you can ever imagine, every disease, every divorce, every death, every accusation that wants to destroy you and graft you into its downward spiral and bottomless pit. All of it came rushing together on Jesus, and it crushed him. But when he rose from the dead, he put all of that evil to flight. He defeated evil, and he liberated you from its grasp. One day, evil will only be a memory. If that, the Goliaths will be gone and the whole earth will be a beautiful garden city where we never have to live in fear again. But until then, we live in faith. Not faith in ourselves, but faith in the new David, the true king, the one who fights for us so that we can live in his victory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.